0: And now we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 13, the words of Jesus saying, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and by the spirit that filled your son Jesus by the spirit that drove him to do many mighty acts. We pray that you would grant us that same spirit to receive, to appreciate, to understand, to give thanks for his words, uh, cause us to learn from him so that we might obey him and obey your law in all things. Uh, Father, we pray that you would deliver us from every distracting thought and every error today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may have a priceless treasure right under your nose, and not realize that you have it. And consequently, you may lose that treasure to someone who recognizes its true value. In 1989, a man bought a painting at a flea market for $3. He didn't even want the painting. He wanted the frame that it came in. And when he cut out the back of the painting, a copy of the Declaration of Independence fell out of it. Uh, it was one of 500 original authorized copies of the Declaration of Independence from 1776, and he sold it at an auction for $2.42 million. That's a, that's a good investment, isn't it? $3 at a flea market, $2.42 million at, at an auction. The vendor at the flea market uh, was not reported uh, to have had any comment on that. Um, a French couple bought a cluttered house in 2014, as is, and they cleaned out the attic, and as they are cleaning out the attic, they find an original painting from a Renaissance artist, uh, Caravaggio was the, was the artist, a painting worth between 114 and $171 million. Art historians knew the painting existed, but it had been lost for decades, gathering dust in a pile of junk, in somebody's attic and somebody sells the house and don't even, they don't even know what they have. In 2005, an 83-year-old man was digging through a trash can outside of a convenience store when he found a $1 million winning scratch-off lottery ticket. When he turned it in and was rewarded the prize, the local news ran with the amazing story, which alerted another man who claimed that that same morning that the older man had found the ticket, he had bought an entire roll of that very scratch off and had had thrown away what he assumed to be the non-winning ticket. So he knew the ticket in the trash was his and he sued the old man who found the ticket, he dragged out the proceedings as long as he could and finally agreed to a settlement of $140,000, which seems unfair. He shouldn't have got anything. I mean, which one of us would feel sorry for, first of all, someone who buys a roll of scratch-off lottery tickets, <laughs> and second, doesn't even check them carefully enough before he throws them away? These stories grab us for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's kind of a, 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 an aspect of you get what you deserve. There's this this uh, aspect of comeuppance of the person who didn't properly value their precious possession and let it go or threw it away. But these tales also lure us into thinking that maybe we have some kind of great treasure just hiding in our attic or in our storage shed. Maybe maybe all those Beanie Babies you've been holding on to from the 90s <laughs> might be worth something or the, the the Franklin Mint collectible plates with Elvis on them that your grandmother has Um, Maybe those really will be worth something someday. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable of someone who had a great treasure and who lost it to someone who valued it much more. A man in the parable finds a treasure hidden in a field, and when he discovers the treasure, he covers it up, he goes and he sells all that he has to buy the field that has the treasure buried in it. He doesn't disclose to the owner that that he's found something in his field, and so he pays less for the field than he would have if the owner had known what was there, but the buyer offers a price that equals his own entire net worth. He sells everything that he has, and he obtains the field and the treasure. The owner of the field, apparently, doesn't care to investigate. The owner of the field doesn't ask further questions or to discover what he actually has in his possession. Why does this strange man all of a sudden want my field so badly? Why is he willing to offer me such a price for his field? Well, it doesn't matter to the owner. He sells his property not knowing what he has. He doesn't realize that he has a great treasure sitting right under his nose. It doesn't seem like he really cares. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is is like. How so? How is the kingdom of heaven like this? Well think, when Jesus comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that message is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he's saying is the kingdom of heaven is rushing in right now with me and my work. So the call is to everyone to turn away from that old world that is passing away and come enter the new creation. The old way of life is over. The temple is coming to an end. The sacrifices have an expiration date. The old calendar of feast days and the cleansing rituals, they're all finished because they've all fulfilled their purpose. Jesus says he is the one that all of this was pointing to all along. All of these things were symbols and shadows, but he, Jesus, is the reality. Jesus and his work with the goal all along. And here now, the son of man, the second person of the Trinity, the word incarnate comes to visit Israel in person to bring in his new creation. The fulfillment of all things that have been promised from Adam forward are now seen in Jesus. His work and his presence among them was the greatest gift. It was an incredibly valuable treasure. And presently, the majority of Israel at this time, the majority of Israel is treating him like He's nothing, and his kingdom is nothing. In that day, to follow Jesus, to turn from the old world that was passing away, to turn from your sins, and to obey him and follow him, it was costly. It required a great deal of sacrifice. You would have had to adjust a lot of things in your life and do without a lot of comforts. It would put you, to follow Jesus, would put you in direct conflict with everyone who was heavily invested in keeping the old world just like it was. And so for many people, it just wasn't worth the trouble to follow Jesus. It wasn't worth repenting. And as a result, they turned away from the incredible riches of the kingdom of heaven. They despised it and they forfeited all of these things. While others are going to discover Jesus and they're gonna treasure him and his kingdom and they're going to find in him life and blessing And health and peace. So Jesus' parables here illustrate what's going on with Israel who is presently engaged in a rejection of their inheritance. And what's gonna happen with the Gentiles who will recognize the infinite value of the kingdom. There are Gentiles, there are people outside of the kingdom who will see what Jesus is doing and, and know that it's worth more than anything and they'll give up everything they have to enter that kingdom. The Gentiles are going to understand, like the man in the parable. If I have to get rid of everything that I own, if I have to give up everything, if I have to let go of all my earthly wealth and possessions and status, if I have to let go of my influence and my reputation to inherit the kingdom of God, that's a bargain. That's a steal. Where do I sign? I want that. In Israel's national rejection of her inheritance. There is a parallel here to the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau despised his birthright and Jacob was eager to obtain it. When Genesis introduces the two men, Genesis 25, um, we're told that Esau was an outdoorsman. He was a hunter And that's all there was to it. He liked to play. He liked to goof off. He liked to go hunting. That's his whole personality. His personality is, you know, he just likes to have fun and hunt. Jacob, we read, was a perfect man. He was a mature man. He acted like a grown-up. In uh, Genesis 25-27, some translations say Jacob was a plain man or that he was a mild man. And, and from there, you kind of get the impression that maybe Esau was the real man. You know, Esau was hairy, he liked to kill things, he liked to eat meat, and, and Jacob, you know, as, as the translation is in many of our, our Bibles, was this mild man. Jacob just liked to stay home with Mama, he learned how to knit, he learned how to make brownies, and, and those things. Uh, um, but that's not what the word is at all. The word is not mild, the word is not uh, plain, the word is perfect. The New American Standard comes the closest. The New American Standard has civilized man, uh, which, which I would prefer more than mild. But the same word gets translated other places in the Bible as perfect. Um, in, in Job, we, same word, Job was a perfect man. And that comes up a few times. Psalm 37 says, Mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. The word perfect uh, shows up in a lot of other places, and it's always translated to perfect, except for when we talk about Jacob, because we have this assumption that Jacob was uh, a pushover, and there's this common Sunday school narrative that, that not only was Jacob a mama's boy, but that also he was a cheater, that he was a conniving you know, con man, or, or that Jacob defrauded Esau out of his birthright. But we have to start here, that when we are introduced to Jacob, we're told that he's perfect, which means he's the faithful man. He's the mature man. Esau, on the other hand, is the man who grieves his parents by bringing home Hittite girls. Esau runs around with idolaters, and he marries them. And, and that, that um, Esau is favored by his father Isaac, even though when Rebekah was still expecting, God said the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. That Jacob, the younger, would be the covenant heir. The blessing and the duty as the keeper of the covenant is gonna to pass to Jacob by God's decree. But, but Isaac is blind. Father Isaac, he doesn't see things clearly. He is, he's playing favorites with Esau, who's an unbeliever. He's, a, he's, he's acting like an idolater. And so something's gonna to have to be done to correct this. So we know the story. Esau comes in from hunting one day while Jacob has a pot of stew going and Esau comes in the door and says, I'm about to die. I'm about to starve to death. I'm about to fall over right now. I'm I'm hungry. I'm weary. And Jacob says, I'll give you some stew if you give me your birthright. And Esau said, he doesn't care. He said, what is this birthright to me? What do I care about? What are you talking about? This covenant. I don't care about this covenant. I don't care about Yahweh. I don't care about anything. And Esau, again, his heart is with his pagan wives. He doesn't care about being a mature man. All of this means nothing to him. Esau is an unbeliever, and Jacob is deliberately exposing uh, Esau's unbelief. Jacob is demonstrating Esau doesn't deserve the inheritance. He doesn't deserve the blessing. So Esau swears it over to him. He said, just take it. I don't care. Give me some of that stew. And the Bible says, thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau is going to repent later, but at this time, Esau is an enemy of the covenant. He is an enemy of righteousness. He is an enemy of God. And when when Jesus comes, Israel is behaving exactly like Esau. They have the most... Valuable thing ever with Messiah and with the kingdom that he's bringing, and they despise it. They don't think it's anything. They don't know what they have right under their own feet, and they don't think anything of it. While the Gentiles are going to stumble across it and they're going to gain the whole field, they're going to inherit the earth. Jesus tells another parable similar to this in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Several years ago, there was a fisherman in the Philippines who uh, got his anchor caught on something. He couldn't get his anchor loose, so he had to dive down in to find out what his anchor was caught on. He found a giant clam, which he brought up to the surface, and he found that this giant clam contained an enormous pearl, which is about one feet, I'm sorry, one foot wide and about two feet long, and it weighed about 75 pounds. Some experts say it might just be the biggest natural clam pearl in the world and could be worth $100 million. But the man has held on to it for years. He didn't want to sell it. He just likes having it. He just thinks it's the greatest thing to have, and he doesn't, he doesn't even think about selling it. It's just, it's just great to have the biggest pearl in the world. Uh, he enjoys it. But if he offered to sell that to you for a value equal to everything that you own, if you just look at this as a purely financial decision, if he offered to sell that to you for everything that you own, that would be a steal. I don't know about you, but for me, you want to make a deal? Absolutely. My net worth is significantly shy of $100 million (laughs) presently. That would be the investment of a lifetime. If you asked me, would you sell everything you own to have that treasure, I would say, absolutely. You bet I would. And I would go home and I would explain to my wife that we have to sell everything. It's all getting sold. A yard sale, it's all going. Baby pictures, baby pictures. Everything's going. We'll get new baby pictures. We'll get new babies. I don't care. It's all going. We're selling it all to have that treasure. Now, if that sounds crazy, if that sounds a little bit overboard, if that sounds extreme, that's just what the merchant in the parable does. He found the treasure he'd been looking for for all of his life, and he sells everything that he has to obtain this treasure. And again, it's a bargain, happy to do it. That's how the faithful assess the value of the kingdom of heaven. And when we say the kingdom of heaven, what are we talking about? We're talking about the realization of God's rule on earth, the manifestation of God's order, God's law, God's priorities on earth, that earth runs just like heaven, that his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And nothing is more precious than that. Nothing is more important than seeing Jesus recognized as king in every sphere of our society, in every corner of our world. That's that's how the merchant views this uh, this pearl. I'll sell everything to have it. And Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's worth everything. Not everybody thinks like this merchant, though. In a few chapters, as we study Matthew, we're going to meet a rich young ruler who thinks he's kept the law perfectly. He thinks he's complete and mature, and Jesus says, you're not. You're not perfect. If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. All of your riches, Jesus is saying, your riches aren't worth anything compared to the new heavens and the new earth. All of your houses and your lands and your properties, by the way, are about to tank in value. All of these things are idols, which are more important and valuable to you than obedience and right law-keeping. So sell it all and come and follow me. Because rich men, idolatrous rich men, become attached not only to their wealth itself, but they're also attached to the whole world that makes them comfortable in their wealth. And Jesus is telling this man, you can divest yourself from that world. Confidently, you can pull everything out of that investment because that old world is going away. But the man wouldn't do it. The man went away sorrowful. He was too invested in the old world. But the apostles did do what that rich young ruler was unwilling to do. When Jesus um, called on this man to do this, the apostles say, we've already done this, right? And and in that same chapter, Peter said, we have left all, Lord, and we followed you. And Jesus said, yeah, that's right, Peter. That's what you've done. He agreed with him. And and Jesus promised him, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. The apostles made the sacrifices that their father Abraham had made. Remember, when Yahweh called Abraham to get out of his country and from his family and from his father's house, God called Abraham to go to a land, he says, go to a land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing to all the nations. And so Abraham did that. He left his land. He left his family, he left all of his familial wealth and he went just as God told him to inherit something greater. And the Apostle Paul also, he articulates this. He says, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, but I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. This is how to respond to the call of a savior who emptied himself, to join us in human flesh. The Lord Jesus held back nothing for the redemption of our lives, for the redemption of our souls, for the, for the uh, forgiveness of our sins. He held back nothing and the response to that savior is to do likewise. I'm, there's nothing more important to me than the kingdom. There's nothing more important to me than the kingdom over which Christ reigns. The order of things under Jesus is so rich and wonderful, and beautiful, and glorious, that there is nothing that we should be so tied to that we wouldn't give up to obtain it, to be a part of it. And and you are called on to make these very real decisions. Some of you have had to make decisions between job or Jesus. Some of you had to make relationship uh, decisions between this relationship and Jesus, between school and Jesus, between family and Jesus. We view these sacrifices though, these sacrifices we make, as a royal bargain, because we're inheriting everything. And Jesus gives another parable. He gives the parable of the dragnet in verse 47. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. If you step back for just a second and think about all the parables that we've read in this section, um, we started today reading the parable of the treasure in the field. That's a land-based parable. And then we read about the the pearl of great price. There's a, a pearl has to do with treasure at Sea. Throughout the prophets, throughout the Old Testament, there's always this um, contrast between the land and the sea. The people of the land in the prophets, the people of the land is always Israel. The sea is where the Gentiles come from, the monsters that come up out of the sea are are the, um, the empires of the Gentiles. So there's always this contrast between the people of the land Israel, the people of the sea, the Gentiles. And so now in these parables, we've got this contrast again. We've got these parables about how the the people of the sea are going to enter the kingdom. The people of the land are inheriting the kingdom. And Jesus also started here with, uh, we we read a couple of weeks ago, parables about the fields, the the, uh, sower and the seeds, the wheat and the tares, which we studied last week, which showed us some good plants and some bad plants which require separation. And now he concludes this section with a parable about the sea, about dragging a net through the water and catching all kinds of fish, which some are bad, some are good. It requires some work to separate. He's talking about the end of the age again, uh, which is not something from his perspective that's thousands of years away. This this age, the end of this age is very near to that generation and the sorting has already begun. Jesus has called his apostles to be fishers of men and the book of Acts is about the church dragging the net through the Mediterranean world, through the Gentile nations, catching men, some to repentance and salvation, and some are going to be exposed for their idolatry and unbelief and being prepared for imminent judgment." Jesus asks at the end of these parables, he says, are you keeping up? Look at verse 51. Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Which is slightly humorous and slightly relatable. Um, He's just, he's giving them these weighty, immensely dense truths. and And he stops and says, are you guys getting this? Are you keeping up? And they say, yes, Lord. But I'd love to hear the inflection on that. Was it yes, I I think so, maybe, I I mean, I, I think I get it. Or was it a confident yes? Either way, he receives it and he says, okay then, if you're getting this, then you're the new scribes, verse 52. He said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. He says, okay, if you are getting this, you're my scribes. You're the ones who are gonna inventory everything. You're gonna write it all down. You're gonna communicate it to others. You're gonna take stock of everything like doing an inventory in a store. You've got some old stuff. You've got some some new stuff. You've got old things in your treasure. You've got new things. And this is what the, the apostles have. They have the old riches. They have the law. They have the prophets. They have the old things that that point to Jesus. And they also have the new things, the things that Jesus gave them, his teaching, his application of the law, his restructuring the world around himself. And Jesus says to them, you get both. You get the old and you get the new. Not just one, not just the other. You get both, which means for us that The Old Testament is our story. Don't ever think that the Old Testament, well, that's kind of murky and dark and that belongs to somebody else, but we're New Testament Christians. No, 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 we're whole Bible Christians. All of it belongs to us. The Old Testament is our story. The people in the Old Testament are our people. Abraham is our father by faith, which is often why when I tell stories from the Old Testament, I say, you know, when we passed through the Red Sea, I mean, the apostles used the Old Testament this way. We passed through the Red Sea. uh, We wandered in the wilderness. It's because it's our story and these are our people. And Jesus saying, this is all yours to the apostles. You're the new scribes. You keep these treasures. Now, as if to illustrate everything that Jesus has been saying about how that generation is despising their inheritance, uh, we, we get an event that proves Jesus right, right at the end of this chapter, verse 53. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. When he came to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get these, this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the final time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus goes to his synagogue, and you can see why from the reception that he gets there. The men at the synagogue notice that something is unusual and extraordinary about Jesus, but that astonishment turns into scoffing. Who does he think he is, they say? Where did he get this wisdom? This is that carpenter's boy. Who's he? Oh, he's Mary's kid? Now yeah, we know Mary, we know Joseph. We know his brothers and sisters. Who does he think he is? Where did he get this wisdom? And they're offended at him. The word there, the Greek word is scandalizo, where we get the word scandal or scandalized. They were put off. They were indignant. They concluded then that Jesus is not any big deal. Jesus isn't anything special. And what he's doing is not important. It's not significant. It's all just a joke. It's just a little distraction. It's nothing to take very seriously. They have a priceless treasure right under their noses, and they just don't care. Others will care, but they're missing out. And they say, we're not giving up anything to follow this guy. My goodness, what are you talking about? It's not worth following. And so Jesus responds to this, and he says, a prophet is honored everywhere except for his hometown. It frequently seems to be the case, doesn't it? That no one you grow up with really takes you seriously. You have to go somewhere else to be successful, Um, I would love to see us not do that. I would love to see us actually honor our homegrown prophets. I would like to see us honor and appreciate and give thanks for the young men and young women who grow up out of our congregation who do good good things and keep them close to home so they can do good things for us here that we don't ignore them or despise them. But it's very easy to say, oh, I, I wiped that kid's nose. I changed that kid's diaper. He doesn't have anything to tell me. You know, she, she, done, she ain't no count. I, I saw what she's doing when she was four years old. No, um, we, we can't think. That's, that's a pagan way of thinking. We value and we appreciate what our children do. But that's, they weren't thinking that way. They were thinking, that's, that kid, I know that family. They're nothing special. And because of their unbelief, Jesus doesn't do many more mighty works there in Nazareth. In fact, in the very next chapter, Jesus is going to start moving away from his hometown and he's headed toward Jerusalem. He's making his way toward Jerusalem for that final showdown uh, at the end of the gospel. So what instruction is there for us in these parables? What warnings are there for us? In Romans 11, Paul writes that this falling away, the casting away of Israel brought about the reconciliation of the world to God. Their branches were broken off because of their unbelief that our branch might be grafted in. And so Paul warns us there in Romans 11. He says, therefore, do not be haughty, but fear. Stand by faith. If God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. So we are now in the position that Israel was in. We now have the great treasures of the kingdom. We have the pearl of great price. We have the gospel and the word of God. We have the promises. We have access to the fellowship of the Trinity by the work of Jesus and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. We have the church and the sacraments, and we are likewise tempted to take these things for granted. We're tempted to think, oh, this really is not a big deal. This ain't that special. We start to assume that what we have together and even what we have together in this congregation is Ordinary, that it's common, you take it or leave it, it doesn't matter. Who cares? We weren't thinking this way three years ago. It, 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 three years ago, if you think about what you were doing in May of 2020, we couldn't wait to get together. We couldn't wait to sing together and spend time in God's Word and worship together. And doing something as simple as eating together was really special. It was really a big deal. I mean, it was a little countercultural, it was a little low effort, risk taking. But in times of conflict, in times of turmoil, you see how important, how precious the kingdom of heaven is. The church was our stability. The church was our sanity. I don't know what I would have done without all of you. But when things kind of get back to normal, you let your gratitude slip a little bit. You grow less thankful. You get more inclined to gripe. Uh, You become less patient with each other you don't see gathering together as that critical or that vital anymore. It's fine if you do it, it's fine if you wanna do it, it's fine if you don't. You see, we want the kingdom, we want the blessing, we want our marriages to thrive, we want our children to obey, we wanna be able to educate them, we want our work to prosper. We want all the blessings, we just want them cheap. We, we, we don't wanna sacrifice anything for them. We're not gonna give up our sins or our idols, we're not gonna make any hard decisions. And so because of this, I expect to see more folks who were driven together in a time of crisis to flake off and, and, to, and to give up and drift away in a time of peace. It wouldn't be the first time in history that this has happened unless we deliberately resolve that that's not going to happen. If we resolve not to let that happen and cultivate deep, gratitude for the riches, for the wealth that is right under our noses. To to say I'm not gonna give up uh, 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 the things that I have and I would rather give up anything else in my life to have what we have as a church, to, to give up anything else before we give up the kingdom. If you're in your teens, your early 20s, listen closely. Um, some of you still live at home and, and you come to worship and you participate in the life of the body just because that's what your family does. And that's, that's great. That's what we do. This is, this is what we do together. But it really hasn't cost you anything yet to be a follower of Jesus. You have inherited an immense wealth of blessing. And, and, and you don't even know yet what you have been delivered from. You kind of see what's out there Some of it looks weird. Some of it may look attractive. Some of it looks interesting, maybe appealing. But you haven't had that idolatry, that hatred and rebellion against the Lord Jesus. You haven't had it turn full blast in your face in a way that you have to confront it and deal with it every day and be faithful in spite of it. You have been spared heartache and persecution and ridicule for the cause of Christ thus far, for the most part. You've been spared this partly because your parents have made great sacrifices to to provide this kind of life for you. Uh, Some of your parents had to fight through some pretty heated conflicts to get to where they are. All of this, however, young man, young woman, all of this is God's grace to you. Considering the spiritual wealth that you possess, it's like your house is sitting on a gold mine. It's like every wall of your house is covered in exceedingly expensive, Renaissance paintings. It's like every drawer has precious gems and every closet is full of treasures, unbelievable treasures. And it's very, very, very easy for you to take this all for granted. I know, I'm, I'm a Generation Xer. I know what indifference is like. Hey, we created indifference. We, we came up with the I don't care attitude. Not really, we inherited it, uh, but we mastered it. We perfected it. And I know what that's like. It is very tempting to not be grateful. It's tempting to consider yourself deprived and destitute and sheltered. It's exceedingly easy for you to think that the heritage that you have been given is a joke, that it's common, that it's worthless, and it's not that big a deal if you trade all of this that you've been given, this faith, for whatever the world has to offer. Just go try it. Go live like a pagan for a while child of God, young man, young woman especially, do not fall away. Do not trade your inheritance for nothing. Cultivate appreciation. Uh, Cultivate gratitude for what you have And out of that, exercise yourself toward obedience to God. Do not despise your birthright like Esau. You cannot turn your head in any direction without giving uh, thanks for something or finding something to give thanks to God for. And, and, And knowing this, you say, nothing is more important to me than pleasing God in all things. Nothing is more important to me than the fellowship of the saints and the worship of the triune God. I'll give up anything to have it. And if I have it, I won't trade it for anything because to be in Christ is the only place of life and blessing and hope. Let's give thanks to God. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great treasure that you have given us. We pray that by your spirit, you would help us to to recognize it for what it is and to give thanks and out of our gratitude to obey you in all things. So Father, we ask for this for us and for our children. Please grow us up more and more to imitate our Savior uh, and, and to inherit his kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.